If you are visiting with us this morning, let us say that we are grateful and thankful to have you with us. Did you get a visitor's pack? Somebody shake or nod. Somebody. Don't let me hanging out here by myself. If you did, uh, if you'll pass those toward the center aisles, we'll uh, have some gentlemen come around and pick those up. We'd like to make sure that we have a record of your attendance. If you don't see anybody there to pick them up, if you'll just leave them right there in your seat, we'll get them after our services this morning. Let me ask you a question. If you could know the end of a situation from the beginning, would you want to? Would you want to know that? Let's put that in practical application within our life. If you could know the details of your life from the beginning and how your life would end, would you want to know that? Would you like to know the details and the ending of a marriage from the very beginning? Or the life of your children or the life of your parents or grandparents? Would you like to know the end from the beginning? <coughs> The first mention that Jesus mentions about the end, he's 12. Parents are in a panic because they, they can't find him as they're traveling. <coughs> Why am I choking? <coughs> Excuse me. And so they go back to the city. They find him in a room with those doctors of the law. And they begin to say, Why didn't you follow us like you were supposed to? To which he makes this veiled reference, I am supposed to be about my father's business. Knowing at least from age 12 what the end would be. June, I can look further back in his life, even when his mother is swaddling him within that barn. And the angel saying to her, his name's going to be Jesus. He'll save his, or his people from their sins. Even at that point, his family knows the end from the beginning. Even in those gifts there at the beginning, gold and frankincense and myrrh, the end was foreshadowed in those gifts. Gold was given to nobility and the children of nobility in that day. And to the king of kings, they bring gold. Frankincense in that day was given to the children of the high priest. And to our great and glorious high priest was frankincense brought. And knowing the end from the beginning, there's myrrh. That's a spice that they rub on the exterior of the death shroud there so that the decaying body won't smell as badly. They know the, the end from the very beginning. Jesus in his three years of ministry would talk about the end from the very beginning. He would speak about how that the, the, those who were jealous of him would take him. 
how he would be sold and, and for what amount he would be sold and to whom he would be sold and how he would find the end of his life. And at each time that he would mention that end from the beginning, he would also mention this, but there is coming a day. Three days down the road, there's a grave that cannot contain the Christ. In the book that we have, the song book that we have for our youth group, uh, there are little more contemporary songs in that particular book. Some of them are fantastic. If you don't know them, you need to know them. Some of them not so much, but we sort of pick and choose which ones uh, to sing there. And then there's this one. Three questions and a statement. Can you still feel those nails every time I fail? Does he hear the crowd cry crucify again? Am I the cause? Am I the cause? of his pain when I know I've got to change because I just can't bear the thought of hurting him. Three simple questions and a, and a statement. Generally, post-traumatic stress syndrome, now known, a few years ago known as post-traumatic stress disorder, a few years before that, known as shell shock. Years before that, known as a soldier's heart. Generally, that idea is associated with men who have been in battle. But as we begin to, to sort of open that idea up, what we realize is everyone within their life has had some sort of traumatic event. And certain words, smells, places, Certain things bring those memories flooding back. And I can't escape the idea that that particular idea would be the same as Jesus the Christ, even in his glorified state as he sits on the right hand of the throne of God. And I fail. wonder at what point in time do, does the failing add up to where he begins to rub his hands as they have those holes in them. Or perhaps his side as he's thinking about that spear that went in there. Does he still feel those nails? I was listening to a doctor last night describing just simply the idea of, of crucifixion and that as uh, the, the, the more deadly version of the idea of crucifixion is asphyxiation, strangulation. 
And he's either hanging there with the weight of his body pulling on those nails in his hands, or he's having to stand up to breathe, at which point all the weight of his body is on the nails that are going through his feet. And at what point does he still feel those nails? Every time that I have said that I'm going to follow you, that I'm going to do what you say, that I'm going to be your man here, and I fail him. And I choose to follow self. Can he still feel those nails? What about when I fail? Does, does he hear the crowd? ringing in his ear as he did on that day. As he stands before them beaten and, and covered with a purple robe, at which point they would pull that off and uh, as that blood would begin to coagulate to that robe, it would just begin to rip open those sores yet again. At what point in my failures does he hear that crowd in an overwhelming roar crying, crucify him, crucify him, almost like an NFL chant for defense, defense, crucify him. When does he hear that? And to know without a shadow of a doubt, that he hears those things because of me. Because at one point in time I told him, I'm going to follow you, but an opportunity to do what I wanted to do came up, and so I chose that. Does he still feel those nails? Does he still hear that crowd? Am I the one that causes him pain? Crucifixion is an unbelievably agonizing way to pass from this life into eternity. By the way, for all you who love language, you know what the root word of excruciating is? Crucify. The root word of excruciating is out of crucifixion. It's the pain that would be simulated to crucifixion, which then, in effect, takes a certain word out of my vocabulary. How about yours? Am I the one? who's nailing his hands and his feet? Am I the one who is hitting him in the back? Am I the one who is putting that crown of thorns on his head? Am I the one pulling the, the hair out of his beard? Am I the one slapping him? Am I the one spitting on him when I know I've got to change? And unfortunately, the answer to that is yes, I am. Because at some point in time, I have said, 
I'm going to be faithful, but yet not just right now. Maybe in a little while. Notice this last statement. Because I, can't, I just can't bear the thought of hurting him. And the fact of the matter is this, we get over that statement pretty quickly. It's, a, it's an uncomfortable thought when you and I look at those three questions. It's a squirm-worthy thought where we kind of shift in our seats a little bit. But if we're going to be really completely, fully honest with ourselves, when this slide changes, you'll forget about it. He knew the end from the beginning. Let me take that statement back. He knew the end from before time existed, and he still came here to feel those nails. And he still came here to hear that crowd cry, crucify. The problem is sin. You can go back to Genesis chapter 3 as far as you want to go in the history of man. And what you'll find out is man was, was created in a perfect environment, completely, perfectly sinless. It would be God on day number 7 who would say about this, this man and his wife and about these worlds and universes that he created that the, all things are very good. And then Genesis chapter 3, it happens. The first sin is ushered into the world when they take of that fruit and Eve out of deception eats and Adam out of rank foolishness follows right along. And then in verse number 15, there's a, a prophecy being made that there will be an offspring that will save mankind. Matter of fact, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 in, in academic worlds is known as the proto-evangelic. You know what that means? How many of you know what a prototype is? All right, don't be scared. So we got half of it, right? It's the very first. Evangelic is the very first time the mention of the gospel or by what means God would save man is ever mentioned in the history of man. Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. But if you go to Genesis chapter 4, you read about Cain rising up and killing his brother Abel as... One offered a sacrifice that was accepted and one not. Now let me ask you a question. How is Genesis 3.15 ever supposed to be uh, fulfilled when the world's full now of three people that we know of and Satan has all three of them? How, how's it happen? Genesis chapter 4 will tell us that another son is raised up to take the place of Abel, whose name is Seth. And from the line of Seth, you have Genesis chapter number 12. You run into a man by the name of Abram, who will have his name changed to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, God tells Abram at that point in time that I'm going to give you a great land. 
I'm going to make your family great, and of, out of all the nations in the world, everyone's going to be blessed by you. Now, that third one is where we really want to stop and consider for a moment. Just because he is who he is, just because he's so great and I'm not, oh no. This is the idea of Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, opening up, blossoming out just a little more. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, we find out that not every child of Abraham's will be the child of promise, but we find out that the tribe of Judah will be the tribe by which the Messiah comes. We find in uh, first, 2 Samuel chapter 12 that it will be through the house of David. And we find out from Genesis chapter 3 at the very outset that the Savior is going to be a, a male child. Now how many male children do you suppose from Genesis chapter 3 of the expulsion of the garden until Jesus comes about throughout the Jewish nation? How many mothers do you think looked at their baby child and said, could this be the one? Is this one it? Is this the Savior of the world? Psalm 22 is an interesting psalm. As it, most psalms are written, they are written in an emotional state. You can read that and you can see where David is as he's being tracked by the enemy. Where David is after he is triumphant over his enemy. Where David is as the nation is growing or where he is being tested or even uh, punished by God. Psalm 22 was the psalm that was read when the uh, temple was beginning its worship. It was, a, it was a call to worship. Everyone hears that, everybody begins to, to file in and find their seats, right? You know why? These didn't exist. So I went, uh, a few years ago, went to a place called Marakabai, Guyana. And uh, here's how the church knew it was time to meet then. However many people just got it into their head, who were members of the church, went over to the building that the church owned and began to sing. And then the whole uh, village heard that singing, and they say, oh, it's time to go, so let's all go. You know why? They don't have these. And if they do, they really don't care about those. But in Psalm 22, the beginning of the worship in the temple, what you hear at every outset of the temple worship is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You go on and read through Psalm chapter 22, and you read about this Messiah who is coming, who will be prophesied as having his lots or as his, uh, his garments cast or the lots cast for his garments. You'll see him being prophesied as being one who is on a tree. Imagine that. You'll hear Jesus in the gospel accounts theoretically quote this verse. And I say theoretically because of this. I don't think he's quoting it. 
I think he's asking that question, why are you leaving me down in this? And secondarily, opening worship to all mankind throughout all of the world. You remember John chapter 4, where he spoke to that lady at the well and said, it's not always going to be the fact that you have to go to Jerusalem to worship. As a matter of fact, here we are, Hot Springs, Arkansas. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, we find more of this particular uh, beating and uh, death of this Messiah. Chapter 52, the latter portions of it will tell us that, that, his, that his face and his visage will be so marred that it will be unrecognizable. And as we look at it, we, we kind of think that uh, we, we see someone who maybe has taken a strike or two against the face, and so uh, you might have difficulty with some swelling to figure out who he is. But the idea there is visage will be so marred, it'll be, he will be beaten to a point that he won't even be recognizable as a human. Hmm. In 53, as you and I read it, will tell us that it's done because of our sin, because of our transgression, our stripes were laid upon him. He was afflicted for us. And the last verse, or chapter 10, 11, and 12 of, of, verse, of chapter number 53 will tell us that uh, God will see the travail of Jesus' soul, will see the anguish and the punishment of Jesus' soul, and his wrath towards sin will be satisfied. If you'll... Flip over a few chapters to Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Here's one of the reasons why. God's hand is not shortened where He can't help out. God's shoulder is not turned so far away from us that He wouldn't give us comfort, or His ear deafened so much that He can't hear. The problem is my sin has separated me from God. And yours has too. When we go over into the gospel accounts, we see all of these predictions of Jesus the Christ falling right in line with what God said would happen. We find him in the back of a garden. Being arrested. By the way, if this interests you, there are at least 24 violations of Jewish law and Roman law that happened when Jesus, Jesus was arrested. At least 24. You know what happens in our world when one of those laws are broken? The case is thrown out. This case was pushed on through. He's in the back of that garden when they find him. He voluntarily gives himself up. That scares everyone to death. They begin to tie him up and to begin to slap him and beat him all the way to the place where he is convicted. And he's convicted before even going to court. He stands before Pilate. And then Herod. And then Pilate. He's eventually sentenced to crucifixion. Which interestingly, some scholars would say was only 
the punishment for those who would be the dregs of society in Rome. Six hours he's there. He dies. To make sure he's dead, we pierce his side with a spear and out pours what looks to be water and blood. And if that's where it ends, if that's the end of the story, you and I are completely miserable and lost. The, the draw of the crucifixion of Jesus is not the fact that he was on a cross. There were thousands, if not uh, even close to a million, who had been on a cross. It's not that he was nailed there, plenty were. It's not even that he died on that cross. Everyone who got on a cross, by the way, you know what the death rate was on the Roman cross? 100%. You don't get off of that. You die right there. Depending on how long it takes, it doesn't matter. You're going to die right there. The hope that's found within the death of Jesus Christ is found three days later on that Sunday morning when he walks out of that tomb. And if he doesn't walk out of that tomb, then I am L-O-S-T. And so are you. But because of that resurrection and because of that, that uh, uh, walking out of that tomb, you and I stand before God with hope. We have an opportunity to be showered in the blood of Jesus the Christ. We have an opportunity for that 1.2 gallons that was in his body to redeem all of mankind. It's only one catch. Knowing the end from the beginning, there's only one catch. And that's found in Hebrews chapter number 10, verse number 26 following. There the Hebrews writer would write this. If we sin willfully after the fact, that there's not enough blood on this earth to cover over you. We make Christ's death and burial and erection of, of no effect. We have taken away the power of salvation found in that blood because instead of following after God in a faithful manner, what I have decided is I'm going to do what I want to do and God's just going to have to deal with it. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't pay any attention to any other statement, pay attention to this. He will deal with it. Don't walk out of here thinking, I have found the loophole. I can obey him and then just do what I want to and God will save me. It doesn't work that way. When I put on Christ's blood in baptism, I have given myself to God as a servant. And he expects me to be faithful. As faithful as he expected his son to be faithful on that death, burial, and resurrection on that cross. Let me ask you again. If you could know the end from the beginning, 
Would you want to? Here's a man that from eternity knew what the end was. Still came to this earth. Still made every perfect decision. Still took up a Roman cross. Still died and was resurrected for imperfect people. The covering of the blood of Jesus the Christ in my life covers up a lot of mistakes, falling shorts, going past where I'm supposed to be, and outright selfish sin. How about yours? You may say, well, preacher, I, I never have done that. Well, today is your lucky day. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. You can access the blood of Jesus Christ today. His gospel is very easy to understand. You have to turn that on to make it move. Very easy to understand and very easy to do. Here is the gospel in just a few moments. Hear what God has to say, Romans chapter 10 and verse number 17, and then do it. John 8 and verse number 24. Have enough faith and belief in God that He will punish those who do not and that He will reward those who do, that you want to be on the side that gets those things done. Repent of your sin, Luke 13, 3 and 5. Confess that Jesus is the Christ, Matthew 10, 32, and be baptized in water, Acts 2, verse number 38. For the remission of your sins, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Being raised to walk in a newness of life, Romans 6, 1 through 4. Being added to the family of God, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. That's it. That's how man accesses the blood that was shed nearly 2,000 years ago. That's it. You say, preacher, is that all? Almost. Almost. You see, when I access that blood of Jesus the Christ, when I, when I am uh, showered in that blood, when, when I have put myself out there to be accepted into the family of God, then I have put myself out there to accept those house rules. How many of you parents know what house rules are? Has anybody ever heard the statement? <clears throat> Let's see if I can get this right. <clears throat> As long as you live in my house, God says you can live here as long as you'd like. But to live here means you follow these rules. To live here means that you live faithfully to the house of God, to the family of God that Jesus Christ gave his blood for. You're welcome to leave at any time. But in order to stay, you have to follow those rules. Have you been living by the house rules? If you haven't, brother or sister, it's, it's time to come home. Come home to a family that misses you, to a God that loves you. If you're not put on Christ in baptism, do those things. And do those things right now while we stand and sing for your encouragement.